The screenplay was written by debutant Michael Arendt, who won a lot. No, Arend. Arend. Like that, Arend. Arend. No. (laughs) You put those bits, two bits together closer at the end, but you need to sound. I I like that. Like that. Arendt. Yeah. Arendt. It's like Grovesner, which isn't said Grovesner pronounced. It's like Grovesner, but it's spelt like Grovesen. Grovesnor. Grosvenor. Yeah, that one. Like the Chumley Warners as well, which is Mm, (laughs) Cholmondeley. Anyway, we've got a cold open crack on, Jen. (laughs) Standard issue. For all women. Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am pleased to announce that our homemade milkshake ice lollies were a delicious success. Does also explain why it's now started raining. Sorry everyone. There's something about them and no offence Mick but they sound absolutely repulsive. (laughs) Something about milk and hate that just makes water come into my mouth but not in a good way. Isn't that just an ice cream? (laughs) Hannah doesn't like ice creams unless it's specifically a magnum. More specifically, an almond magnum. Oh, they're nice. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy. I've been trying to get a thorn out of my finger for three days. Have you succeeded? No. Every rose has a thorn. It's got a plaster on it, obviously, because, you know, that draws it out. What a lie. What a lie. It went in and I pulled it out, but a bit of it stayed in there. And I can see it and it's black and I can't. Yeah. It sounds like a really sad like sad as in is that all your life is fact but it's amazing how your life can just become this when there is a thing stuck in your finger and you can't get it out but you've made it worse by attacking it with the tweezers haven't you oh absolutely yeah no doubt i've now got a hole in my (laughs) finger next to where there's a black thing in my finger good good i'm glad to see you're doing it properly you need to get out i got bitten by a this isn't even my fact i got bitten by a tick last week she didn't even unscrew it hannah she just nailed it off her That's how you get a Lyme disease, Jess. I know. I spent five minutes telling her she didn't have Lyme disease, Hannah. Don't bring it up again. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I did get quite ill a few days afterwards, but I, I don't think I've Maybe. got Lyme disease. I hope not. Where my friends live in Massachusetts, I was, by coincidence rather than by planning, I always go there at the same time of year and it's tick season. And their little town has like huge banners like strung across the middle of it, warning about Lyme disease. It's absolutely terrifying. Genuinely terrifying. Terrifying. Terrifying beasts. A bonus fact for you then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord. And if getting pinged were an Olympic sport, I'd be doing pretty well right now. Team GB are doing pretty well, Jen. Should get you out there. I think I, think I would. I'm just interested if any other listeners have been pinged twice in a week. Let me know. Uh, I can sort out some sort of table and see who wins the heats, who podiums. I think it's me who wins, but <laughs> just just for the avoidance of doubt, let me know. Do you feel like a winner, Jen? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder if you sleepwalk, Jen. Oh, that's if, a good if point. If you, like, wake up and, and in the night, like, pick up your phone, go and, like, check in various buildings you've never <laughs> actually been in and then come back and forget about it. Given that I am a single parent to a very small child, uh, I, I hope very much that that is not the case. And please don't call social services. Coming up, I talk to Arva Wong about her piece for the Fully Amplified podcast series, Anti-Asian Sentiment and the Limitations of the Descriptor Asian 
In Journey Off the Blocks, I chat to former European, World, Commonwealth and Olympic track cycling champion Joanna Roussel about the switch from podium to pundit. And in Rated or Dated, we watch 2006's Little Miss Sunshine. And you are very, very welcome. It was a delight. But first, inappropriate mallets, mallet, menopause in the workplace and shark encounters. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Imagine a photo of a woman with a tea stain on a t-shirt and a rat on her shoulder riding a bike across America. That joke will make more sense shortly. Hopefully. Hope is all we've got, Hannah. (laughs) So, Mickey, did you watch the Olympics opening ceremony? I did not watch the Olympics opening ceremony. Yeah, I know it's popular, but I've never deliberately sought it out. But I, I have had to watch it for work a few times. That said... I've never watched it in South Korea, where it appears to be a totally fun, free-form word association game. Indeed, South Korean broadcaster NBC has apologised for some of the words and pictures used to describe and represent various nations as their athletes walked around the Tokyo Stadium, waving happily to the limited crowd in attendance. I am intrigued. When Haiti's athletes walked into the stadium, an on-screen caption described the country as one with, quote, an unstable political situation due to the assassination of the president. <laughs> I mean, that's quite the condense, isn't it, of Haitian history? And when the Syrian team entered, a caption read, quote, a civil war that has been going on for 10 years. Fucking hell. Now, while these statements might be true, they don't really sit well with the spirit <laughs> of the Olympics. <laughs> And I'm not going to say, come on, guys, you've had four years to prep this. Not least because they've actually had five. (laughs) They didn't do much better with the photos. Italy was represented with a photo of a pizza. (laughs) Romania by a photo of Dracula. (laughs) And not even the Gary Oldman version. (laughs) And brace yourself, Ukraine by a photo of the destroyed reactor at Chernobyl. Shit off. (laughs) Absolutely true. (laughs) Rumours that Iceland was represented by a picture of Björk eating a reindeer, (laughs) Ireland by a black potato, France by a man naked from the waist down, and America by that guy with the horns who stormed the capital have been very much made up by me. Honestly, I could do this all day. What do you think they put up for England? Oh, Oh, it's not England, is it? Team GB. Oh, we're just Boris Johnson waving his flags while stuck on that fucking zitwire, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, or maybe Braveheart eating a leek and punching a man in a top hat. Okay, so like Australia is just Steve Irwin in a cork hat fighting a crocodile. Yeah, flip-flops. Definitely flip-flops for Australia. I think they call them thongs, Hannah. <sighs> if you're going to if you're gonna like bring in some stereotypes, then at least get them correct. This isn't the first time that NBC has been in trouble for its opening ceremony words and photos. It was fined after using similar captions and images at the opening ceremony for the 2008 Beijing Olympics, where it referred to Zimbabwe as, quote, a country with deadly inflation. I wouldn't have got Zimbabwe from that, to be honest with you. That, I mean, that could be anywhere at the moment or like in various times. I wonder if they were using deadly like the way the Irish use it. Ah, that was deadly. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Also, I think the fact that they've done it before means that they're not really sorry. They're just having a lovely time. Well, hold that thought. At a press conference on Monday, the channel's CEO, Park Sung-ye, apologised, saying NBC had, quote, 
damage the Olympic values of friendship, solidarity and harmony. I bow my head and deeply apologise, he added. Man, I hope another country uses that photo in its coverage of the 2024 Games. Ah. <laughs> uh... Is it is it wrong to find it really funny? I don't know. I don't care. I, don't I find know. it really funny. <laughs> yeah. Talking of funny, let's talk menopause in the workplace. Oh, no. But let's talk menopause in the workplace because try as we might, just like with our period, women cannot leave that shit slash blood, sweat and occasional tears at home. Although way too many are finding they have to leave work. In fact, almost one million women in the UK have left jobs as a result of menopausal symptoms. She says frantically scratching her arm. <laughs> Given it tends to hit in our late 40s, early 50s, it means women who would be eligible for senior management roles are leaving work at the peak of their career. And it also has knock-on effects on workplace productivity, the gender pay gap and the gender pension gap. Fun all round. Nah, it's rubbish, isn't it? It is rubbish, but this news story is actually a little slice of positivity. What? I know, fingers crossed, here's hoping, etc, etc. On July the 23rd, a parliamentary inquiry into the workplace treatment of women going through the menopause was launched in order to examine whether legislation goes far enough to address discrimination. I'm going to guess they're finding a no there. <laughs> Called an invisible cohort, why are workplaces failing women going through the menopause? I think also they could have got a much snappier title. Yeah. But anyway, the inquiry comes from the Cross-Party Women and Equalities Committee and will draw up recommendations with a view to shaping policies to address gender equality. Chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, Right Honourable Caroline Noakes MP, said, three in every five women are negatively affected at work as a result of the menopause. The repercussions of that are not merely individual. Excluding menopausal women from the workplace is detrimental to our economy, our society and our place on the world stage. And, cue anti-Samantha poster, the inquiry needs you, as it is seeking written submissions on several issues surrounding menopause, including the nature and extent of any discrimination face and how practices to address workplace discrimination can be best implemented. The deadline for submissions is September the 17th this year, and I will chuck a link for where to submit those in the episode notes and indeed in a tweet. Hmm. Hmm. Gonna yeah. write in about my itchy arms. <laughs> it's very, very hot in here. Anyway, want a bit of good news? Yes, please. Well, this is sort of good news. It's certainly being sold as good news for sharks <laughs> and possibly the mayor of Amity. I, however, <laughs> am not entirely convinced, but here goes. Officials in Australia will be describing shark attacks as interactions or negative encounters from now on in an attempt to help us better understand the creatures. Mm -hmm. Scientists say terms like attack and bite have created a culture of fear surrounding the animals, which is harming efforts to help protect the threatened creatures. Take Leonardo Guida, a shark researcher at the Australian Marine Conservation Society, Please know that if we did visuals, I would be absolutely putting a picture of a pizza up here. A wet pizza. <laughs> yeah. A pizza with corks hanging off a hat. <laughs> Guida told the Sydney Morning Herald that ending the use of such terms, quote, help dispel inherent assumptions that sharks are ravenous, mindless, man-eating monsters. I'd have said, 
dead-eyed underwater zombies, but he's the scientist. Oh, I really like sharks. In New South Wales, officials have changed the way they describe human-shark interactions that result in injuries. A government spokesman said its formal shark reports now generally refer to incidents or interactions with the animals. So they've made them more informal. (laughs) How did you lose your leg, Jeff? Had an interaction with a shark, mate. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's an informal report. (laughs) In Queensland, the state government's Shark Smart website now describes how to minimise risks of, quote, a negative encounter with a shark. Now, this might just be me, but encounter is a word that doesn't so much bring to mind the sea as it does a King's Cross hotel. (laughs) which is a joke that also works in Australia. You are welcome. Christopher Pepin Neff from the University of Sydney told a paper that encounters with sharks were called shark accidents before the 1930s, when a prominent surgeon, Victor Coppelson, began to describe them as attacks. Although it's worth pointing out that in the 1930s, people who died while constructing the Empire State Building with no safety equipment were also described as having had accidents. Hmm. Pepin Neff, which I think means he's a mixture of Australian, French and German, so imagine a photo of Hitler naked from the waist down in (laughs) flip-flops. Pepin Neff said the notion of a shark attack is unrealistic because more than a third of encounters leave no injury at all, which is the perfect example of how news can be represented in two ways, because 66% of encounters very much do leave an injury, and eight people were killed in shark-related incidents in Australia (laughs) last year. So, in conclusion, don't kill or eat sharks and give money to conservation charities, but if one of those things bites your hand off, Feel free to call it whatever you like. I think I'm on naked Hitler flip-flop man. I'm on his side. Sharks wouldn't be uh, encountering us if we weren't putting ourselves in their territory. Oh, I absolutely agree with that, 100%. But there does seem to be some element of (laughs) going up to a guy (laughs) who's lying there bleeding on the sand, saying, a shark bit my arm, and going... Can you not use bite? You find that slightly (laughs) aggressive. It would be a lot better for shark PR if we called that a kiss. Oh, I'm sold. But then I've I've never been kissed by a shark. Do you think it's too late for me? No. I think so. No, I'd say rub yourself in chum. (laughs) Straight in, see what happens. Classic Tuesday. Um, (laughs) More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at some Olympic sexism. And by that, I mean it's big and also it's happening to Olympians. Yep, like spilled water, sexism gets everywhere. And it's certainly doing some heavy lifting at Tokyo 2020. Let's go to a man on this, specifically my granddad, whose favourite summer phrase to playfully embarrass his gaggle of granddaughters was, ooh, who wears short shorts? Turns out it's double Paralympic world champion Olivia Breen, who, after she'd finished her long jump at the English Championships on July the 18th, was told her sprint shorts, specifically designed for competition, were, and I quote, too short and inappropriate. Breen plans to make an official complaint, and rightly so. 
We're hoping Breen is joined by the Norwegian women's beach handball team, which was fined €1,500, Euros, that's €150 Euros per player, for wearing shorts rather than required bikini bottoms in its match against Spain at the European Beach Handball Championships in Bulgaria last week. I'm sure you're thinking, look, Mickey, rules are rules. Everyone knows that bikini bottoms, with a close fit and cut on an upward angle toward the top of the leg and with a side width of no more than 10 centimetres, have to be worn by women and men's beach handball teams. Of course you're fucking not, because do the men have to wear skimpy pants when they play? Of course they fucking don't. They just wear shorts. The rules being, they can't be too baggy and must fall at least 10 centimetres above the kneecaps. As Tonje Lerstad of the Norwegian team said, if the guys can do the sport with a t-shirt and shorts, then we should be able to do the exact same sport with the exact same outfit. Yes, Tonje, yes. A spokeswoman for the International Handball Federation told the New York Times something a bit different. She said that she didn't know the reason for the uniform rules, adding, we're looking into it internally, which I guess is clearly much easier to do when someone's wearing skimpy <laughs> bikini pants as opposed to shorts. Anyway, let's sprint as fast as we can to arrive panting and sweating at the Olympics for our last sexism of this week. Spanish synchronised swimmer Ona Carbonal. I've made her sound like it's a foot disease. I'm sure that's not right. <laughs> Ona Carbonell. Oh, as ever, I've only now got it sounds my like accent. Dinner. I've only got my accent. I can only apologise. Told Reuters that despite long negotiations, she has been unable to take her breastfeeding son to Japan with her. Carbonell explained that the strict restrictions that would be imposed on the baby and her husband were entirely impractical. I'm going to hand this last bit over to the excellent Sophie Walker for some final thoughts. She said, these women are Olympic athletes and mothering babies. Stop finding things to be bothered about and just give them the bloody medal now. They're doing twice the work already. Yeah, I mean, the, the handball thing. I mean, that conversation has been raging in beach volleyball for absolutely ages. Wasn't this been so Well, in Olympic beach volleyball, women can wear shorts. They don't have to wear bikini bottoms anymore. That rule got changed. Just what does it bring to the game? I can only assume it, what they're thinking it brings to the game is people who want to look at people's bottoms. That's true. That is true. Specifically women's bottoms. Straight women don't get an option to look at men's bottoms. No. Shame. I want bottoms! Hi, Hannah here. Coming up is an interview I did with the writer Arva Wong Davis about the Fully Amplified podcast. Fully Amplified is a seven part original drama documentary series exploring themes including the Armenian genocide, interracial relationships, and the treatment of Asian women in the wake of COVID 19, which is what I'm going to be talking to Arva about. Fully Amplified is a reduced listening production for Futures Theatre, commissioned and developed by Futures Theatre, which is a London-based charity. You can listen to all seven episodes now, wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Arva, thank you for being on Standard Issue. Thank you very much. First thing to say is, I've listened to your podcast this morning. I got a special preview of it. Nice work. Well done. It's really interesting and it's really thought-provoking. How was it that you ended up getting involved with Fully Amplified? It was towards the end of 2020, Caroline, who runs Fully Amplified, got in touch because she'd been thinking about doing a series of podcasts with a number of female and non-binary playwrights based on community work and based on 
looking at issues felt by people in the last year, but, but particularly by women, particularly like women of colour. So she sort of asked if there was anything that I was really interested in writing about. It was very free-flowing and, you know, I could really have written about anything I wanted, but I said that I was quite interested in writing about British East Asians, British Southeast Asians, particularly in the wake of COVID and the sort of rise of anti-Asian racism and hate crimes that have sort of there's been a huge uptick of those since the pandemic began. And it was something that I didn't feel was getting a lot of space or time. And I really wanted to cultivate a space where British East Asian women could sort of talk about those experiences and use that as a launch pad to talk about more generally what it means mm. to be in this country yeah <laughs> and what home means and what identity means to them it's really interesting because in the earliest days of the pandemic when we were still at mysterious disease first found in china now found in italy mm. i immediately felt very worried about what mm. this might mean for british chinese people or indeed anyone perceived to be yeah british chinese and i rang a few of my friends whose parents came over from hong kong in the 1970s and I said, you know, am I right to be worried? Are you worried? And the answer I got back was yes and yes. So I wonder if you could tell me what the last 18 months have been like for you. For me, it's very different because I'm I'm mixed race. My dad is white, my dad's white British and my mum is Malaysian Chinese. And for me, I'm generally quite white passing and actually people of colour tend to clock I'm mixed race. I think white people tend to sort of just see white. So I was very... I'm very privileged in the fact that I have not experienced any of it, but there was so much that was sort of happening to friends and to people I knew. And, you know, it was in sort of February 2020, I was reviewing a show at um, Volts Festival in Waterloo, which is like a theatre festival. And there was a show about the Hong Kong protests and a whole bunch of that cast was sort of saying it was sort of like March just coming up, like literally I think like maybe two weeks before lockdown. And that whole cast was sort of saying afterwards, like someone got racially abused, like on the tube going to do the show and that kind of thing. And that was the point where I was like, oh man, here we go. (laughs) Because like you say, you know, it was very sort of like mysterious. And then there was sort of like all the rumours going around of like, oh, it was because someone ate a bat or like it was in one of those wet markets. And there were Mm. so many sort of really damaging stereotypes about that, that when those were all coming out, it was sort of like, this is not good and this is not going to be good. And it's just going to be, I think, a steam valve for like a lot of racism and hate mm. to be to be allowed to flourish in a sense of like, oh, now there is like we have like a a reason. <laughs> now we have like a sort of valid reason to be like afraid or avoid or harass Asian people on the street. Now we can mm. do that, I guess. Not that there wasn't before. Yeah. But you know, it's more that validation. Uh, but the conversation has also sort of changed in lockdown in that it's become very heavily about race because of George Floyd. Mm. But in many ways, it's become about race as in a black and white issue. Mm. And that kind of takes away from the fact that there's a huge range of people that don't fall into either of those categories. It can be unhelpful to sort of, you know, there, I think there are a lot of British stages that I've personally spoken to who kind of, can be like, oh, you know, why do people care about X race, but they don't care about us? And I think that is actually a really also damaging Mm. way to think about it. You know, like sort of the idea of 
Asian immigrants and this idea of like the model minority of like, you know, Asians are hardworking and they will, you know, they'll work very hard and they won't complain. And that was a, a myth that was perpetuated during the civil rights movement to make African-Americans and make the black community look bad mm. and look like the wrong kind of minority. We are not free until all of us are free. And I think there's such a need for solidarity at this time. And I think, you know, personally, like British East Asians really need to get behind the black community and South Asians and many other struggles in order to free ourselves, I mm. guess. Pity people against each other never works um, um, no. or or it does work if your purpose is to pit people against each other uh, exactly yeah. exactly yeah you know, and there's so much anti-blackness i think in the in british chinese communities as well and it's all it's all a tactic you know it's it's exactly exactly it's pitting people against each other and when honestly the sort of the thing that we're all against it's it's the same thing mm. and so we need to sort of work together and not sort of say how come people care about them and not us and that's really unhelpful, I think. I wanted to talk about the word Asian because you have used East Asian, Southeast Asian. You've yeah. used a lot of terms here. Because to me, the word Asian, I mean, it never seems a particularly useful descriptor, no. especially given it, it describes almost 60% of the world's population. On the podcast, one of your guests says that when she arrived in the UK, she was from Hong Kong and now she's Asian. So I wonder what you think about how much this sort of flattening of populations is kind of part of the problem. Yeah, I think flattening is a really good word for it. I think, you know, Asians, I mean, there I go. It's that sort of word. It's it's easy, but it plays into this idea, I think, that like Asia is a monolith, billions of people, and there's sort of this fear of this sort of like unknown mass of people coming towards the West or mm. that kind of thing, I think is really strong stereotype. And it's difficult, you know, because I think also with the podcast, it was like, you know, there are so few things about various Asian communities, I think, in art and in media that it can be quite difficult because you sort of want to represent your community, you want to sort of write about your community maybe, but what happens is that you often get sort of held up as the figurehead for like the entire community mm. and it's sort of community is also the wrong word because it's like yeah it's all of asia so that includes you know south asia southeast asia east asia like you know and even within those there are so many different facets and components it can be again quite i think another helpful thing and i think it makes it easier to kind of explain things away to kind of just sort of say like all asians are like that or sort mm. of you know you don't have to sort of get into the more difficult stuff of like actually there are loads of really complicated things within malaysian chinese contingency there's like colorism there there is a lot of stuff about class in there as well and I think it's sort of yeah it makes it easier to just sort of say it's Asia so it's you know you kind of don't need to think about it too deeply mm. you can kind of just brush it away a little bit for me obviously as a just an observer from, from this point when you choose a metric like Asian especially when you're like having that on a target base level so we'd like whatever percentage of our employees or whatever to be Asian yeah, that only then goes ahead and favour countries that are doing better than other countries because you can hit your target for Asians at sure. university and still have no British Chinese there. You know, because sure. because we're talking about just like dozens and dozens of countries, it just doesn't seem particularly helpful, but it sure. does persist. One of the things that comes up a lot on the episode of Fully Amplified is social media. 
I'm going to paraphrase one of your guests here. There's a pressure to be online to represent, but what you see online is really bad for your mental health, Mm. which seems like a problem. I'm curious as to your views on social media. Do you think at this point it's doing more harm than good when it comes to race issues or is there still a way that it's redeemable and it can become a force for good again? It's really complicated. I think you could never, I think, sum it up as good or bad just because it is such a wide-ranging or encompassing thing that is so many different things at once. And I think the stuff that we were talking about tended to be, you know, there are a lot of videos of particularly in America, although it is truly not just an American problem, you know, of often Asian elders getting beaten up or, you know, people walking by and not doing anything. And it was, there was a lot of footage of that kind of thing. And and when we were having those conversations uh, for the podcast, it was, I think, the week after this shooting in Atlanta where a lot of massage workers were killed. And it was a very fraught period, which I think you can hear in the podcast. Um, there was a point of, in the UK, it was sort of not a huge, there was not a huge amount of talk about it. And it was such a tricky thing because I think so many of us felt like, how do we talk about this? But also how do we not traumatise people further? Mm. You know, I think there's a lot of quite well-meaning people who will like sort of share the videos and that kind of thing and sort of for like awareness, quote unquote. But it's actually very damaging mm. and it, it's really terrible horrible to see and it was a really tricky time because it was like well how do we make people care but without inflicting even more harm I don't think there's a perfect answer to it I think it's I think it certainly helps in raising awareness of issues but it also can flatten those issues it can be helpful for sort of broader statements but I think when you have to come down to sort of like the question of like the grittier stuff of like okay, what are we doing about this you yeah. know we can fundraise and we can do all that thing but actually like you know how are you dismantling these structures which have allowed events like this to take place that's when social media i think falls down a lot yeah um you know you can sort of say something really loudly but the sort of like it will sort of disseminate in a way which flattens Honestly, I thought it was so interesting. I think your writing was lovely. I really enjoyed listening to it. And I think people will get a lot from it. So I would like to know, Alva, where can I find more? You can listen to the podcast and all the other wonderful podcasts from Monday the 26th of July. And I think that is anywhere you, any major podcast platform. Oh, good podcast. I can't say it now. (laughs) (laughs) Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Olympic gold medalist, world champion, all of the champions, this year representing Team GB in the studio at Eurosport as the official UK broadcaster for the Olympic Games, Joe Rousel. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. You are, of course, forever etched in the memory of us Brits or supporters of Team GB standing on, well, lots of podiums, to be honest, but particularly in the 2012 Olympics is when you kind of shot to fame as, well, on the winning team of the Team Pursuit for 
Great Britain. I just wondered if you could just tell me a little bit to start off with what that experience was like for you, the, obviously winning itself, but then all of the things that came afterwards. Yeah, good question. So, yeah, the London 2012 Olympics was my first Olympic Games. I was 23 years old. At that point in my cycling career, I'd already been world champion three times uh, in the event that I was going to do at London Olympics, um, won a few World Cups, that sort of thing. We're also the current world record holders. We went into the Games as one of the favourites for a gold medal. And I spent the whole time preparing myself for the Games, telling myself it's just another bike race. It's the same girls that I raced against all year round, all the other competitions. You know, it's a, it's a velodrome, it's a 250 metre wooden bowl like don't overcomplicate it joe you know what you're doing you can do this but of course the olympic games is just on a completely different scale to any other sporting competition i really thought i'd sort of experienced everything i could have done with you know winning world championships and obviously you have associated sort of media commitments with that but but olympics whole new level without giving you all the pieces of the competition we had qualifier semi-final and final we broke the world record three times uh, looking back, we had a relatively easy win in the final. It definitely never felt easy at any point. But looking back now, it was, it was sort of a big margin that we won by. And yeah, became Olympic champion at 23 years old. Completely overwhelmed by the response afterwards. I was warned by a few people to like turn off social media notifications on my phone. Um, I didn't do that. And my phone was having a <laughs> meltdown from every sort of social media outlet. People contacting me that I hadn't spoken to for years. It, it was just crazy i couldn't believe you know how, how much of a bigger stage the olympics is compared to any other cycling competition and being at home in london as well was obviously extra special um, i am from london i grew up in southwest london originally but then have trained in manchester for, for most of my career i'm now back in london but um I was based in the northwest with my training in manchester but yeah to be back in london was was really special uh, and the, everything that came with the home olympics like i think very few athletes globally will ever you know will ever get lucky enough to have the olympic games in their hometown and i feel i feel very privileged that i did get to experience that well these olympics obviously they are going to be quite different for for lots of people for lots of reasons not least because there aren't going to be any crowds there and i was thinking about the velodrome at the london games particularly just the atmosphere i wasn't actually there i obviously watched it all on the tv but you could see just from watching it on the tv what a phenomenal atmosphere that was and there you know these really iconic pictures of harry and kate and william cheering you guys all on and i wondered how much these guys will miss that support yeah that's that's a tough question i think Obviously, it's a real shame for athletes across the board that there's going to be, you know, not not the crowds because, you know, we love that. We love competing with the noise from the crowds. I was very lucky, like I said, to have a home Olympic Games and have a a home crowd supporting me in my first one. That really sort of set a very high standard. So, of of course, that's that's amazing. However, you you have to be adaptable as an athlete. You know, life in general will have, have to be adaptable. We've all learned that in the last in the last year and a half, certainly. So I think the best athletes in the world are the ones that can sort of deal with these changes, deal with these unusual circumstances. And I was wondering if maybe they could actually play into the hands of some of the um, less experienced riders, because it's going to be a strange experience for everybody going to an Olympic Games with, with empty stadia. But for the like more experienced athletes that's going to be super weird because they're used to it being a certain way but for the sort of the newer athletes coming along for their first game this is going to be all they've known so if anything perhaps it could be a little bit of a leveler like it won't give so much of an advantage to athletes that are more experienced so I'm not sure I'm trying to put a positive spin on it 
Um, I also know that, you know, in training, you, you train week in, week out without any crowd there. You're, you're very much used to going through the process with, without people shouting, shouting at you the whole way around. So it's a sort of case of get, getting on, getting on with the job, I suppose. It's, it's a real shame when it is as big as the Olympics. And I think it's going to be a strange one to commentate. Like you said, I'm, I'm working as part of the commentary team for Eurosport and it's going to be interesting to sort of create that atmosphere with us looking looking at the pictures for the audience at home. So an extra little challenge there. Do you find it hard to, because obviously you've been in that situation, when you're commentating, do you find it hard to kind of detach yourself from it? Or do you feel really, because obviously you know a lot of the people competing as well. Yeah, so I really, really enjoy commentating. And uh, when I first started doing it, the first few events I worked on, all the, my sort of ex-teammates just happened to do really well. And it, it was all really good. And I was saying, isn't everyone amazing? And someone said to me once, like, how are you going to feel commentating on people that were your friends if they don't do very well? And I was like, oh, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. And actually, that's really tricky. And I think that the more sort of years away I am from my career, so I, I retired after Rio it sort of gets a little bit easier. But I actually found that really hard when people hadn't performed to be critical, like, as an analyst on TV, like, that's my job, you know, I need to say what went wrong. But actually, when those people are your friends, it's a little bit more difficult. But I like to think I can have a sort of good balance of, okay, this went wrong. However, like, there's all these other factors at play. I'm not just going to sit there and say, this rather did terribly because there's, there's normally pretty, a pretty good reason for what happened, you know, whether it was they didn't get the tactics quite right or had an injury in the build-up or whatever it had been. So I'd like to try and give a bit of an insight into what it is like from the athlete's perspective. But yeah, it, it is weird commentating on people that that are your friends and thinking about them watching it back later, thinking about their families watching it. And obviously that's not, you know, I shouldn't have that in mind. I should have the wider audience in mind. But in my head, it is easy to think about, you know, what are their parents going to think? What <laughs> It's a little strange. So obviously, I mean, I, I assume that you are really looking forward to all of the cycling events, but particularly the track cycling. Is there anything yeah. else you're sort of really looking forward to outside of the cycling events? Yeah, so definitely the rowing and uh, Helen Glover coming back, having yeah. three babies. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's insane. I can't get my head around that. She had three since the last Olympics. Yeah, so she had one and then she had twins. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, so, and she, like, she didn't officially retire after Rio, but she, like, stopped competing but never sort of made a retirement announcement. Mm. But I think everyone sort of considered her retired. But, yeah, no, she's she, she's back for this Games, and I am fascinated to see how she to see how she does. I've, I've, I've always felt a bit of affinity with the rowers. I'm not really sure why. Cyclists and rowers seem to get on quite well. And Helen Glover came through a sort of talent ID scheme. She's a couple of years older than me, but a, a similar sort of scheme looking for rowers back before the London Olympics that I sort of got talent ID through um, for cycling. So she's always fascinated me as an athlete. And yeah, so definitely Helen Glover, one to watch out for. I'm not sure exactly what day she's racing, but it's soon. Okay, well, I mean, the, the rowing is always kind of like a good good prospect for, for GB medal hopes, isn't it? So, so I'm yeah. sure we'll all want to watch that as well. On the cycling team, there are some new faces and obviously some old ones, as, we, as we've discussed. Who are our big hopes for medals, do you think? Yeah, so in terms of the track cycling, um, the Women's Endurance Squad, which is the squad I left, um, appear to be in really, really good shape. So they've got three events. They've got the Team Pursuit, which is the event I used to do. Mm -hmm. They've got the Omnium, which is an individual event, which Laura Kenny will be riding. And they've got the Madison, which is a new event at this Games. 
So the Madison has been a men's event of the World Championships for many, many years. It was never an event for women until 2017, got brought into the World Championships for women, and it's now an Olympic event for men and women. So really, really big news. There's an extra um, medal event on the programme for men and women, and yeah, it's not just the men this time. There's three chances of a medal for the for the British um, women's endurance squads, and I think they've got a really good chance of meddling in all three of those events. Also a good chance of a world record in the team pursuit, which, which like I say, is my old event. So I've, I've held that record for five years now. So I've been quite lucky that it's lasted that long, but I'm sure that's going to go in the next sort of um, week and a half now. So looking forward to that. Uh, and then on the, the mountain bike side, there's a young girl called Evie Richards, who's really exciting young rider. She's already a Commonwealth medalist. This is her first Olympic Games. So look out for her. Uh, and then Lizzie Dyblin in the road race. She got a silver in London Olympics in 2012, yep. fifth in Rio, but probably not the favourite for the race. If if you're sort of being really honest, looking at the start list, I think the real favourites are some of the Dutch riders. But Lizzie's the sort of rider that is, is really good at being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, all eyes will be on the Dutch, like I say, in that race. And I really think a good result for Lizzie could be on the cars. There have been some headlines about cycling in the last few years that have been perhaps not as flattering or, or positive as, as we might have liked. And, you know, cycling has been one of the big Team GB interests at the Olympic Games for a while now, really since Athens, I guess. And I wondered, do you think that cycling's kind of lost interest because of that? Or do you think that the public are going to fall right back in love with it again after they after they tune in to watch the Olympics? I'm hoping the public will fall right back in love with it again. Um, it is, it's always hard to read negative stories in the media. Like I look back on my career as an athlete and there were a lot of times that were really tough. There were a lot of really tough selection decisions. There were times when I didn't make the squad and I could have moaned and complained that it was unfair. But actually you need to go away and look, look at what you're doing and you know come back better. And it, it was a really weird process to have a lot of that in the media, which is around the time that I retired as well. So I'm like, yeah, I'm retiring. Let's sort of celebrate my career. And everyone's like, hey, but what about the bad things? And it's like, oh my God, um, chill, chill. So I I hope that people will 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 get behind the team and support the team. In in my sort of general experience of chatting to people, um, I, I live in a very different world now. Essentially, I'm, I'm I'm a student. I'm a very mature student, but um, I'm back at university, so I'm not quite as involved in the sporting world as much as I was before. Uh, and chatting to people, people seem really excited about the Olympics. People ask me a lot about what cyclists to look out for. People sort of have an awareness that we tend to do quite well at the cycling at the Olympics. And people that don't watch cycling in between Olympic Games perhaps aren't as quite aware of all the sort of dips in form that you have and the question marks over, you know, is this rider going to be fit or not? And people are sort of expecting big things. So I'm really hoping the public will really be behind the team. Um, and obviously a lot of them are my friends and they're people that I was teammates with. So obviously I'm, I'm a big supporter of them and I really sort of want to pick them up and I know how hard everybody's working. And this extra year has been a, re- a real test in being adaptable for a lot of people. And obviously for any older riders, a whole extra year of training. Olympic cycle, when you're an athlete, lasts forever. Like four years is a heck of a long time. I mean, it goes by in a flash when you're retired, but when, when you're training, it lasts a really long time. So an extra year, has been brutal for a lot of people. So I'm hoping I'm hoping to see um, some really exciting performances over the next two weeks. And, and yeah, like I say, I really hope the British public will be, really be behind them. Cycling has been a huge success story. And women's cycling particularly is something that, you know, the profile of that has risen exponentially alongside Team GB. How important do you think the Olympic Games are for profiling women's sports? Um, I think the Olympic Games are absolutely crucial to give that sort of platform to female athletes. 
um, you know, in cycling, we compete every year at World Championships. Every year there's a European Championships. There's obviously the Commonwealth Games, which are, which are a big deal every four years as well. But a lot of cycling goes under the radar. A lot of a lot of men's cycling is on TV. You know, everyone's heard of the Tour de France. There isn't a women's Tour de France, but there's a men's Tour de France. And it's on various different, you know, covered by all the media outlets. And, you know, you can you can follow that quite easily. You, you can listen to multiple podcasts every day analysing the men's Tour de France, but you'd you sort of have to work a little bit harder to find out what women's racing is going on at the same time. But the Olympics gives that platform. It's it's men and women competing in the same place at the same time. You know, it equals it all. And I think for female athletes, definitely in cycling, it's probably a, a bigger deal than some of the sort of pro events. So as as a, as a male pro cyclist, the Tour de France might be the biggest event you can, you can compete in. The Olympic Games, it's still a big deal, but it's probably not a career highlight for a lot of men. Whereas for women, the Olympic Games is, is the biggest event on your calendar ever. And yeah, like I say, it gives that platform, it exposes the, these incredible athletes to an audience that perhaps wouldn't see them normally. And it really sort of puts Sophie on the map. So I remember after the London Olympics, we had first medalist for Team GB with Lizzie Armistead back then in the, in the women's road race on the second day of competition. And we won a lot on the track and it was, it was already good. And I went back to my old cycling club, Sutton Cycling Club, down in southwest London after the London Olympics. And it was it's quite a small cycling club. And they said that the number of female members had quadrupled since the London Olympics, oh, wow. like a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, my God. And obviously, we all talk about inspiring a generation. And there's all those lovely slogans and everything. But to really see firsthand, like, wow, that there was actually there was actually young girls sat at home, not into cycling, that thought, wow, I want to try it. Let's, let's Google a cycling club and then turn up and, and have a go. And it was really nice in that real sort of direct impact. So part of, part of all, a big, big platform for female athletes, but also actually inspiring people to get out on bikes. It's, there's, no, there's nothing that compares, really. Joe, when does the track cycling start? When can we catch you on Eurosports? So I will be with Eurosports from Sunday the 25th for the Women's Road events, but the, the track cycling starts Monday the 2nd of August, and there is seven days of racing, so Monday the 2nd until Sunday the 8th of August, so that whole of that second week of the Games, normally track cycling is a little bit earlier, but it's been pushed back this time, there's a whole extra day of racing, because like I said, there's an extra event for men and women, so seven days of competition on the track, so it should be really good. You can stream every unmissable moment from Tokyo 2020 live on Discovery+, Plus, the streaming home of the Olympics, including every event and every medal across the games and in addition to Eurosport 1 and 2 viewers can enjoy a further seven bonus channels Eurosport 3 to 9 as well as over 50 live event feeds Joe, thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me really enjoyed it thank you welcome to Rated or Deed Jen, what film means that I am currently wearing pyjamas and a bum bag <laughs> this week we watched 2006's Little Miss Sunshine, a darkly funny road story of sorts, taking us on a journey of life, death, winning, losing, but ah, go on, mostly winning with the Hoover family. The screenplay was written by debutant Michael Arend, who won a lot of awards, including the Oscar, and went on to work on some big family films such as Wall-E and 2015 Star Wars reboot The Force Awakens. It was directed by husband and wife team Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris, who also received some major award nominations for their turn, including the BAFTA. 
This was also their debut feature film, having previously worked mostly in music videos for 90s Indian rock bands such as the Smashing Pumpkins, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Oasis, to name a few. I want to know which Smashing Pumpkins video. Tonight, tonight. Yeah, I think it was that one. A little bit about the plot. Mum, Cheryl, played by Tony Collette, is knackered and frustrated, waiting for husband Richard, Greg Kinnear, to kickstart his unsuccessful career as a motivational speaker. To the detriment of basically everyone, he is obsessed with winning, despite not having done very much of it himself. They're joined by Cheryl's brother Frank, played by Steve Carell, the one-time number one Proust scholar in the world, convalescing after a failed bid for romance turned into a failed suicide attempt. And he'll be kipping in with teenager Dwayne, played by Paul Dano, who's been reading Nietzsche and taken a vow of silence while he tries to get into flight school to start a career in the Air Force. And he literally looks like the least likely candidate for this ever. (laughs) Yeah, but I actually think that's one of the bits of genius about Little Miss Sunshine is that children are massive or teenagers are just huge contradictions. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm into Nietzsche, but I also want to become a fighter pilot. Yeah, no, it, it, it is brilliant. The spectacled Olive, the baby of the family, played by Abigail Breslin, is obsessed with beauty pageants after recently entering and winning one while staying with her cousins and is being coached by her granddad, played by Alan Arkin, who in fact won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his part. He's joined the family after being kicked out of the retirement home for snorting heroin, an act which spawns (laughs) one of the most memorable lines of the film, you're crazy to do it when you're young, you're crazy not to do it when you're old. Fair, right? Got that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I've got the one about second degree burns on his cock on a t-shirt. <laughs> After possibly one of the most awkward and longest family dinner scenes you've ever witnessed on film, an answer phone message delivers the fateful news that Olive has qualified for a place at the Little Miss Sunshine beauty pageant in Redondo Beach, California, a mere 800 miles from their home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. A road trip in the biggest dick about you can have on four wheels, a VW camper van and indeed hilarity in shoes. The film was a commercial success taking $101 million at the box office, a critical success. You won't see a better acted, better cast movie than Little Miss Sunshine, said critic Roger Ebert. And cards on the table, I fucking love it. Although, in the interest of balance, The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw gave it a 2 out of 5 because it's not as, and I quote, daring as it presents itself to be because it's all about family. Guys, I know you've both seen it before, so instead I will ask you, does Peter Bradshaw have a point or is he just joyless like his Shrek-hating colleague whose name I've forgotten? Scott Tobias, I think. Scott Tobias, yeah. I think Bradshaw is wrong. His review is really interesting, actually. I had a little read of it, and he's basically like, well, this isn't the film I thought I was going to watch. All right, Peter, go and see a different film then. (laughs) Uh, Go and see this dark, miserable film that you clearly wanted to watch. I finished watching this and thought, do you know what? Is some of the the punchlines a little bit easy and you can see them and it's like it's convenient that all this stuff goes wrong? Of course. But is it a near-perfect feel-good film? I would argue, yes, it is. Yeah, agreed. We've talked about this before, like how I personally believe like the 2000s, so from 2000 to 2010, were like a really high watermark for low budget. I mean, even though I think this was 8 million, that is still low budget Mm. American cinema. And it is absolutely just glorious. I I love it. I mean, I love it because actually I I don't want to see normal happy families. I only want to see dysfunctional and weird families on TV. 
I'm a massive fan of Alan Arkin and I would say this is probably his second best film which is definitely a statement but he and Abigail Breslin together it's just oh, it's just magical oh, I, I t- and the last 15 minutes are fucking insane just absolutely hilariously wildly insane I think the thing about everything that goes wrong as well on the road trip is every single thing that happens, even though it feels outrageous and, oh, my God, another thing's gone wrong, it's credible. It could all happen. Well, I mean, to take this from someone who drove a Volkswagen camper van (laughs) for a decade, yeah, I mean, I would say your horn getting stuck on will probably be the second most common thing that happens when you drive. Um, not not for the reasons that it happens here, but basically because when they get hot, which they always are because they're air-cooled, so if you're not moving, it's always hot. And the plastic just expands and it just gets stuck on. And you have to jimmy the top off it, which you can't do whilst driving. Yeah, Hannah, did you have the constant horn for a while then? Hey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it would just go off at work. And people had just, just been like, oh, yeah, it's my horn. I'd have to go down into the car park and just pull the top of the horn off. But, yeah, that does happen a lot. And although I never had that thing where the clutch went, because Volkswagen's engines are in the back, but all their pedals are in the front, there's quite a complicated set of levers and things that do this underneath. Sometimes they get jammed in position. So another really common thing that happens when you drive a camper van is your accelerator gets stuck to the floor. Oh, that sounds scary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. So I have also had situations where I've had to go round and round roundabouts while I was trying to make a decision about what the fuck I was gonna do. I guess I have like one minor, minor, minor criticism of it. I'd be interested to see if either of you agree with this. Which is that because I do really love it and I think you know the individual performances are brilliant Paul Dano is incredible in it like he's brilliant um, they're all brilliant to be fair but I, I think he really because he doesn't fucking say anything and he's brilliant they're all but, really good at facial acting because yeah. there's a bit when Greg Kinnear is the dad when he is watching her on stage yes, yes. Yeah. his face does so much work and it is absolutely beautiful and, and Steve and so Carell in this is fucking great yeah. Well, nobody knew Steve Carell could act before yeah. this film. Nobody had any idea. They just thought he was funny. Yeah, no, he's brilliant, isn't he? The only thing that I would say is because I think it does. I think it does say like good things about women. Mostly the stuff about beauty pageants and the stuff with Olive is is all like very positive. The only thing I would say is that why doesn't Cheryl get a story like everyone else does, or is the point that the family is her story? Do you see what I mean? I guess she's unusual in that she's the breadwinner. They talk about the fact that she is the one bringing the money in while he is trying to set up his nine steps to never failing, that he forgets to follow himself. But yeah, I guess, I know what you mean. She is the mum, basically. She doesn't have anything else apart from mumming. But she's not. She's the mum. She's the wife. She's the sister. Yeah, it's not so. Yeah, I guess it's like they all kind of have a backstory, and she doesn't really have one. Like, she doesn't have time for a backstory. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That's the only thing that struck me. Mickey wrote the intro for this, but she sent me a message to say, Do you have anything for the intro, or shall I write it? And the thing that I had for the intro was, What film did we watch this week that made me really uncomfortable about my feelings about a horrifically offensive old man? <laughs> 
because I think that to me is the thing that stands out yeah. is how genuinely awful Alan Arkin is to his daughter, it, like in law to his, well, not he's nicer to his son than to his daughter-in-law, but he's just really offensive. And yet he is endearing as fuck. And that gives me very confusing feelings. Yes, I agree with you because I did think, you know, the stuff that he says about being in the old people's home and, and all the, all the action he's getting and, and the, you know, buying the, the the razmags the razmags the jazz mags yeah. uh, and and all of that like he is pretty gross but at the same time he has those just gorgeous scenes with olive how can you not find him endearing you know it's really... well i mean he rips into tony collette for inadequate housekeeping yes basically in fact they're all really judgy of her because one of the things i like about this is it does have a proper sense of place and they all get mismatched cups in the house and Steve Carell's character looks at his cup, which clearly looks like it came free with Coke or something, in a slightly judgmental way. They are all judging how she runs her house. So I suppose that is her story, that they got some level of respect. But Alan Arkin is rude as fuck to her. Yeah, he is. No, I agree with that. He is an absolute bell end. Well, I love but him. he is also really good at growling. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just like, oh, the scene with Olive is just... It is really touching. Out. And the ice cream, the scene with the ice cream as well, when he's like, oh, you know, when he instigates this thing to try and get her to eat the ice cream. I think the dad is a fucking cock until the I mean, end. He, that's what unites everyone in that van. Yeah. You know? Is that most of them also think that he's an absolute cock? Because <laughs> he's, you know, the message that he's trying to put onto the onto the children, and and the one that Alan Arkin, the that granddad, ultimately kind of, you know, the moral of the story, I guess, is that look, you tried, you put yourself out there, and that's and that's what winning is, and, and whatever. But when he's like, you know, don't eat the ice cream, you'll get fat or whatever, and granddad leads the fucking charge. Of like, oh, you know, I, you know, do you really want us to eat all this ice cream? I know. Granddad leads the charge by saying, "I like a woman with meat on her bones." Yes, which isn't he does... necessarily an appropriate thing to say in that. He situation. does start with that, but he goes on to try and convince her to eat the ice cream, which I think is the right thing to do in that situation i think you can be a bad husband and a bad father and still a good granddad i think it's probably easier to be a good granddad to be fair well well well, while we're here i just have to see my favorite alan arkin bit is the bit where he starts telling Dwayne he should get more but it's not that conversation it's the fact that he starts it with Dwayne. that's your name right (laughs) (laughs) i take back what i said about being a good grandpa (laughs) So what I wanted to talk about, and I'm pretty sure it's on your list, Jen, so apologies if I'm pipping you to the winning slot is beauty pageants. Yes. Because I think the handling of it, and actually a few of the reviews I read disagreed with me, but I think the handling of it is very clever because obviously Olive has learned these moves off her granddad that basically is a stripper's routine to Super Freak. Great song. Yeah. Had it at my wedding. So she's learned these moves to Super Freak and they are all horrified apart from her. Well, her family were a little bit horrified too because they weren't aware this was going to happen. Pedo likes it though. (laughs) Yes. But what's interesting is they're horrified because it's sexualizing a kid. And yet yet. the others are so much more sexualized by trying to look like mini women. Well, what's interesting about that is all of the other little girls are actual beauty pageant Mm, I thought they must be. And they are doing the routines that they do because that was the easiest way to do it was to get people who actually already kind of look like that and are trained in that world 
So obviously they also had to put forward a critique of it without it being so damning mm. that the families of those girls Would agree. were not wanting to get involved yeah. in it, which which is a fine line Can to I check. be damning of it, though? Because it's fucked up, man. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, no, I think that really comes across, that they're so sexualised, the other contestants, and, then, and, the, and that everyone's like, oh, my God, this is horrific what this little girl is doing. Also, I have in to say... In a bikini. Yeah, no, it's it's, yeah... It's funny, isn't it? Because it's what she's doing is sort of like a stripper's routine or whatever, but it doesn't come across as anywhere near as sexualized mm. as what all the others are innocent. doing. She's yeah, just, of you course, know, yeah. granddad taught me this stuff. I really like this song. Look, I'm having a play. There's a brilliant bit and it's going back to that facial acting that they are all superb at. And it's where the host is singing America, America to her. And <laughs> Abigail Breslin's <laughs> yeah. little face is just a yeah. thing of joy. She's just like... What the fuck is going on here? <laughs> he is brilliant, that guy. Whoever's playing him has it so right. I think it's, Dave, it's a younger so David awful. Dickinson, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. When he does that little girl's dancing and he's doing that stuff on the side of the stage and <laughs> you want to die inside. Yeah, the last 15 minutes are wild. I've only ever watched this, I think, once or twice before and I've not watched it for a really long time. And I remember the ending the first time I watched it and it is just epically brilliant and the second time I watched it it had lost like or rather this time I've watched it it had lost a little bit because you know what's coming and it made me wonder about Napoleon Dynamite what God, I fucking love like, Napoleon Dynamite what happens Dynamite if you watch well. that again does that have the same impact I don't know hang on Tina get some ham <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd still be really funny Jed I'm going to watch it again. I've, I've been inspired. And um, just to say, I like to sing to Lyra a version of Super Freak, but it's Super Squeaks. Oh, that's Super really cool. Squeaks. But, you know, when you do want us to sort out that Velcro soup for her, so she can... <laughs> Immediately, please. She's, okay. she's exactly the right age. As soon as I get that tuxedo you were knitting for the wraps, I'll, I'll start work. All right, mate. From the point of view of a universe that I am familiar with, where else this film really succeeds? And I probably didn't notice it before because the last time I watched it, I probably hadn't been in that room before, but is the odd mix of compassionate voices and coldness and paperwork that comes with when you are in a room and they tell you that someone is dead. Mm. Um, that is one is... of the best bits of the <laughs> It's it's the fact that, to me, the bit where the doctor just says, like, and somebody being long, and he's got his most whatever voice on, and then he just turns around <laughs> and goes, Linda! <laughs> yeah, I had to really rewind funny. it and watch it again because I wasn't sure what had happened. <laughs> that, that, yeah, no, I agree. It's brilliant. It's so brilliant. Sorry to interrupt. Here's some live action pegging. Look. What has she got today? Is it a tiny Eiffel Tower? A thimble? No, a it's an Energizer battery. <laughs> Go and see if you can find me another one. <laughs> Forage for batteries, please. Um, Sorry, Jen. It's very niche. It's a very niche way of using your magnetised cat. <laughs> it's got a lot of Breaking Bad people in it as well. Yeah, it's got Walt Just and FYI. Hank. Yeah. I haven't seen it. A lot. It has two Breaking Bad people in two it. Two very key players. Can I just give a shout out to Devochka as well, who soundtrack it? And it's just gorgeous. It fits so well with the aesthetics. It's, and it made me go and listen to some Devochka, which was lovely. In answer to the question neither of you asked, Alan Arkin's best film is Glengarry Glimross. I did want to ask you, actually, but we moved mm. on. So <laughs> thanks, Anna. You're welcome. OK, so I think I know the answer to this, but just for the avoidance of doubts, 
What do we think, guys? Is it rated or dated? Jen, that's your name, right? Yeah. I say... <laughs> I say rated. Jen, I'm, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but uh, I also think it's rated. Linda! <laughs> I agree with both of you. I agree. It is absolutely 100% rated. Right, whose turn is it at the wheel of the bus next week? Mickey, it's you. Come with me and you'll see a world of pure imagination. We're going to watch the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as it turns 50. Is that all? (laughs) Standard issue for all women.